Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to the Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. Today's podcast guest is Jennifer Sloan, an attorney with more than 20 years' experience practicing out-of-home law. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Jennifer, how did you get into out-of-home? Well, my first job out of law school was with a lawyer that probably a lot of your readers know. He represented a lot of the outdoor advertising companies in the state of Florida, a guy by the name of Jerry Livingston. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the day when it was Whiteco and 3M and fax machines and smoking in the office <laughs> buildings. And it was, let's just say, a very long time ago. So I worked with him for a while, kind of left him to go to a big law firm to do more trial work. And in doing that move, one of the billboard companies followed me over to the law firm. And after a year or so, that group approached me and said, hey, we're going to go national. We want you to leave the firm and come in-house and be general counsel for our business. So I did that. That company was known as Bressler Outdoor, mm -hmm. and it grew at a very, very rapid pace. Probably after just a year and a half, we were in 15 different states through acquisitions and internal development. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And just like everyone, it had a deep financial impact on the business model of our company. So the investment group decided they wanted to bring in a new leader and at that time, they brought in another well-known person in the industry, Jim McLaughlin. So he came in as CEO of the business. And I had known Jim from the past doing transactions with him and some of his businesses. So I had the pleasure of working with Jim McLaughlin in this new venture called Olympus Media Group. And to make a long story short, that group ultimately moved up to Georgia. And I stayed in Florida and I opened up my own law practice. And of course, with my background, people in the industry naturally just started calling me looking for help. And what I found was that with my unique background of having been in-house with a company, I was able to look at legal issues for my clients from both a legal standpoint as well as a business standpoint. So while some attorneys will just kind of take a case that's brought to them, I, on the other hand, will usually do kind of like a cost analysis of the site and look at it from a profit potential versus what it would cost to fight it legally. And so I've been doing that for clients in this industry for over 20 years now. Wow. Jennifer, you wrote an article recently for Billboard Insider about force majeure and COVID-19. Could you review the issues there? Sure. Yeah. COVID-19, it's had a tremendous impact, as everyone knows, on our industry, but it really starts kind of upstream with the advertisers. You know, advertisers are either, one, not able to produce enough revenue from their own business to pay the contracted advertising, or number two, they're claiming that they're not getting what they bargained for in the contract. You know, people are not outside looking at billboards. So obviously, you know, the industry wants to know, number one, you know, can they force the advertisers to pay the ad contract or do those advertisers have a legal basis, like a force mm -hmm. majeure kind of a clause that will excuse them from performing that contract? You know, like I was saying before, I really look at every issue from a business as well as a legal standpoint. So from a purely legal standpoint, there is likely no basis 
at all for an advertiser to breach its contract and stop paying the advertising rent. Hmm. Even if I say, you know, half the traffic is on the road, there's probably be difficult to make that case legally. Maybe you make a business case. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Because even though we talk about traffic counts when we sell to an advertiser, very rarely does an ad contract specifically list the amount of traffic counts that are required in order for that to be a binding contract. Mm -hmm. So it's a sales pitch. It's part of the sales pitch, but it's not part of the legally binding terms of the ad contract. So yes, you can force an advertiser to pay the debt that's owed on that contract. But from a business standpoint, is it wise to do that? Mm -hmm. Not at all. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a relationship with that person after this pandemic is over. And they're going to remember how they were treated in their time of need, and they're going to stick with the companies that showed compassion and empathy. And I would say that the trend that I'm seeing with my clients is that they're offering an abatement of ad revenue for about two to three months, but they're also adding two to three months on the back end of your contract. So if you do take that course of action, you know, should you put it in writing? Yes, but it's so voluminous and it's hitting so many aspects of the number of contracts is just so voluminous that oftentimes they're making phone calls and it's wheeling and dealing on the phone versus making sure their I's are dotted and T's are crossed. I think you've got a good point. I do not have a client that has called me and said, traffic volume's down, give me a discount. I do have clients that have called and said, my jewelry store is simply not open. I have to save all my money to pay my employees. I can't pay you right now. So I completely get it. And working with them, adding it on the back, it makes a lot of sense. Jennifer, what about landlords? You know, how does force majeure impact how a billboard company should treat its landlords? Well, you know, as I recently wrote in the article that was published by Billboard Insider, there's very, it's very likely that that there is insufficient language in the lease agreement to trigger a true force majeure type of a clause, because these clauses generally don't reference a pandemic as a reason to be excused from paying land rent. This is Mm -hmm. not something anyone could have foreseen or would have written into their lease. However, the common law doctrine of frustration of purpose is likely the outdoor operator's best argument. Hmm. And when I say argument, I don't mean go flooding the courthouse with declaratory actions to get a court ruling that you're excused from paying land rent. What I mean is this doctrine gives you a basis to write a very non-aggressive letter to your landowner where you're outlining that the purpose of the lease was to rent land to put up a sign that would generate income. And that as a result of this pandemic, the sign is not able to generate income. Therefore, under the legal doctrine of frustration of purpose, your company could be excused from paying land rent. But even if you outline that in the letter, I would then offer to that landowner to just match whatever deal you're giving to your advertiser. So if it's an abatement of ad revenue for three months, then ask for an abatement of land rent for three months and tell them that, you know, if they want to, you can add three months on to the end of the lease term, just like what you're doing in an ad contract. 
And this should be very well understood by most landowners. I mean, this is no different than what many people have probably read about, which is what the mortgage companies are doing for their customers across the United States during this pandemic. They're they're allowing customers to not pay their mortgage payments for three months, but they're adding it onto the end of their mortgage. Hmm. So hmm. again, you know, this is something that is a good method to follow. But if you have a site and it is one of your most important locations where rent is probably very high, you take the time to make a personal phone call and humanize the situation with the decision maker of that property versus sending a, a letter. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if this this event will make us change the language in our leases in the future. In your article, you talked about having very broad language in a lease, which allows you not to pay rent during a pandemic, hurricane, flood, earthquake, wildfire, tornado, act of God, and it's quite extensive. I've also seen la language in leases, some of my leases, that says I can reset rent if traffic volumes drop or if a sign's value for advertising purposes is reduced. What about, Jennifer, changing having language in a lease, which actually covers you that way? Yes, this is something that most operators should do going forward. Now, there's nothing you can do to correct the leases that exist out there that have been written up and have been around for 100 years. Those are going to exist the way they are. At the time of renewal, could you add in an, in an addendum that you want to increase the language in your force majeure clause? Yes, you could. And again, most landowners would probably understand why you're doing that, having lived through the pandemic themselves. But when you deal with large commercial properties, you know, these are very savvy property owners. And are they willing to sign a lease agreement that is going to allow you, the operator, to not pay rent during a pandemic? They might hesitate doing that. They might not want that in their lease. But in terms of a standard lease agreement going out the door to everyone as as the starting point, I would definitely tell everyone to take time to look at that clause in their lease and beef it up and really make sure that everything that you think could go wrong, especially that is site specific. You know, there are some locations that you look at where you say, huh. There's a vacant lot next door. If a you know building is built on that lot, it's going to destroy one of the faces and it's going to basically cut the revenue in half. So write in a provision in the clause that you are excused from paying rent for you know half the rent in the event a building is built on the on the neighboring lot. So very site specific, but also make sure now you are adding in language that deals with things such as pandemics. A must. What mistakes? do you find out-of-home companies make when they are writing leases? We've talked now about force majeure and addressing pandemics, but what other mistakes do you find out-of-home companies make? Well, you know, I would say that most out-of-home operators have pretty good lease agreements these days. You know, they've pulled one from another source and copied it. And so most of the basics are in there. And if I had to point out what are probably the top three biggest mistakes that I've seen, I would say... First of all, it's probably not getting a memorandum of lease signed and recorded in the public records. You know, this is very crucial so that subsequent buyer of the property is put on notice that there exists a lease agreement for the sign structure that they're seeing on this property. And along these lines, 
You know, another mistake that I see a lot of operators making in their memorandum of lease is that they fail to even state in that document that the physical sign structure is owned by the operator. Hmm. You know, the purpose of this memorandum of lease that's being recorded is to make sure someone buying the land doesn't think that they're getting the steel structure that's a permanent that is permanently affixed to the land. So it's imperative that the memorandum of lease not only state that there exists this lease relationship, but also that the operator is the owner of the physical structure. Probably the second biggest mistake that I see operators make in their lease is failing to get the written approval of any lien holders on the real property. So Hmm. if Mr. and Mrs. Smith own a parcel of land and you want to lease it for billboard purposes, if Mr. and Mrs. Smith have a mortgage on that property, let's say it's Bank of Texas, you know, Bank of Texas holds this mortgage most lender documents require a written approval by that lender in the event of a sale or transfer of any interest in the real property to a third party. And the lease agreement would trigger that clause. So, you know, this would, it'll slow down the lease process because to go to a large bank and get written approval usually takes a a lot of time to do this. But if you don't take the time to go through these steps and get that approval, then that lease can be pulled out from under you at any point in time if the bank finds out. And then I would say probably the third other mistake that I see very common in in our industry is that the lease does not give adequate consideration to make a lease binding in a situation where you're signing a lease and you don't plan on paying rent for six to eight months during construction. So you hmm. sign a lease, you say rent will commence when the sign structure is finished and the first advertisement's posted. Well, at that point in time, you haven't paid anything to that landowner. So your lease should have a binder fee, some type of consideration. And you know, oftentimes it's just a hundred dollars. Hmm. And that's fine. There's no mm-hmm. There's no right or wrong answers to what that amount should be, but it should be substantial enough, like $100, to make it so that you have given valid consideration to create a binding lease agreement, even when construction and rent won't start for months later. If you develop out-of-home advertising sites, you need Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. Yesco Outdoors' Pat O'Donnell calls it a must-read for anybody doing development. Neil Bell of New South Outdoor says it's a great book for those who are getting into business, but also for industry veterans. Jim Adalone at Mad Dog Outdoor calls it a great reference source for every outdoor real estate executive or owner. You can buy your copy of Billboard Insider's Guide at BillboardInsider.com. What are some things an out-of-home company should keep in mind when it structures an acquisition? Well, you know, I really enjoy helping operators when it comes to the sale of their assets or purchasing assets from another operator, because it's a very positive transaction for both sides. Despite the typical last minute scramble to fix an issue with an asset that might even arise during the due diligence. You know, I've done so many of these. I can't even tell you how many transactions I've done. I've helped people from the West Coast to the East Coast and everywhere in between. And a lot of the same issues do pop up. So, you know, one of the things that a lot of clients ask me is, do I do a stock sale versus an asset sale? Mm -hmm. And there's pros and cons on both sides of that. 
I would say that the most common is obviously a structure that would involve an asset sale as opposed to a stock, a stock sale because an asset sale, the buyer is not going to assume all the liabilities of the business unless it is explicitly outlined as an assumed liability in the purchase agreement. Whereas when you purchase a company's stock, you're going to take all the liabilities, known or unknown, when you're buying that stock. And Jennifer, it is amazing when, when I have seen stock deals, it is amazing how often there's an undisclosed this or an undisclosed that that comes out after. It's uncanny how often an undisclosed liability comes to the fore after stock sale. That's right. And if it's a small transaction and you're talking about buying someone that's got, you know, three or four billboards, you know, in a small type of town, it's probably not that big of a risk. But when you're talking about buying a plant and that Mm -hmm. plant can be across multiple states or you're talking about buying very high end inventory like Times Square type of stuff or downtown L.A., then your risks are obviously much, much greater and you would not want to do a stock transaction. Now, with that said, I would recommend to a client to do a stock sale if the seller has a very important asset, one that makes up the bulk of their revenue for their assets, and the lease agreement requires a landowner consent to an assignment of the lease. If there's any hint at all that there's a problem with obtaining that consent from the landowner or you're worried that the landowner is going to extort the situation and demand a large payment to give consent, then in that situation, you would do a stock sale. And that's kind of the answer to your problem there of having to go get consent to an assignment. Hmm. Hmm. There's also of tax issues to consider when you're making the decision between stock versus asset. For example, a C corporation has to worry about a double taxation in an asset sale. So the sale of the asset is as a taxable event, and then the distribution of profits to the owner is a taxable event, whereas a stock sale doesn't have that double taxation issue. So Oftentimes, you know, I will tell my clients how to structure it, but I usually tell them to call their financial advisor or tax advisor and get their opinion as well. I I would just add from an operator standpoint, as long as you own an out-of-home company and you buy assets, you'll probably never have taxable income because you will have huge depreciation on the assets you're buying. If, If you buy stock in a mature company that hasn't been building a lot, you may develop a taxable income issue because you've got a plant property and equipment base that's already been depreciated. So as a buyer, you're probably giving the federal government more money sooner if you buy stock as opposed to buying assets. That's exactly right. And you know, every client's situation is completely different. Like you said, someone who hasn't been building in a while and has a very well-established plant of inventory that's been depreciated, their situation is going to be totally different from the operator who's out there building it and flipping it in, Mm -hmm. in less than a year. So that's why I usually say, talk to your financial advisor and get their opinion because they know your whole financial story. And that's going to be a big factor into what decisions made on how it's structured. Jennifer, as is, where is transactions? What are they and what are the pros and cons? Oh, just don't do them. <laughs> just don't do them. Nothing good ever comes from these. Yes. You think you're getting a bargain in the price because usually in an as is, whereas transaction, the price is a lot lower. But 
you end up having to pay more down the road to fix the problems that arise after the closing that were buried somewhere by the seller. So I cannot remember the last time I did an as is, where is transaction for a client. It's just not something that people are doing these days. There's really no pros in it because again, any discount you get is you're going to be paying out of the pocket later on to fix the problem. Talk about holdbacks. It's not unusual. I see some of the larger deals that are done, maybe 10% of the purchase price is set aside as a holdback. Talk about what a holdback is and why they are helpful in a transaction. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, over the years, having done this as long as I have, I've seen a lot of changes and trends in the way that deals are structured. And definitely holdbacks are a very common element to a a sale agreement these days. It gives the buyer assurances that there will be proceeds to go after in the event of a covered claim, something that your purchase agreement says, if this happens, then you get some of your money back. And having the holdback fund sitting there means that the buyer is less likely to have to file a lawsuit against the seller to go find those funds to get that money back. So like you said, most deals call for a holdback of anywhere from 5 to 10% of the purchase price. And most holdbacks range from 12 to 18 months in length. Hmm. The buyer the buyer usually wants a, a good year to own and operate the assets to see what kind of issues pop up. So you need to hold an asset for a year to know what's the local taxing authority, what kind of tax bill are you going to get? Is there going to be any surprises there that you weren't aware of? What types of items might be a holdback be applied against? What, what types of um, specific things? it applies to a loss of the structure, some some type of a loss. So if there is a location that is condemned or it is, it is lost because a landowner terminates a lease agreement, mm-hmm. in any of those situations, that's going to be a loss to the buyer that would usually fall under a covered claim because the buyer purchased based on an assumption that there would be revenue on that structure over a period of time after the purchase. And when that's gone, they need a percentage of their purchase price returned to them. Mm -hmm. A covered claim can also include things that were unexpected that were not discussed. For example, you know, a prior past due tax bill on an asset. So let's say there's a taxing authority that taxes Hmm. $5,000 a year on the billboard and the owner never paid those taxes and there's some sort of a tax lien that exists there that didn't come up for some reason in in the due diligence phase. And subsequent to the closing, the buyer discovers that there's a $20,000 outstanding tax lien that's owed to the local county. That would be a covered claim where they can go back to the seller and say, I need that $20,000 back because I had to pay for liabilities and debts that existed prior to the closing date. Mm -hmm. Can a holdback also be applied against the plant? In other words, if I as a seller make representations as to the quality of my plant, if I sell a billboard plant and then the day after closing a head on a billboard shifts and it has to be replaced, would a holdback be applied against something like that? It could. So Mm -hmm. it depends on what represents representations and warrants are in your closing agreement. So Mm -hmm. if you rep and warrant that there is no structural problems with any of your assets, 
And after closing, the unit then falls down or the head falls off because mm-hmm. there was something wrong in one of the welding joints. And it turns out that you had knowledge of this problem hmm. prior to the sale. Then, yes, that would be a covered event. If the same exact factual pattern happened, but you didn't have knowledge, you had no way to know there was a problem with that structural weld, then you would argue it's not a covered claim, that it was an unforeseen circumstance that happened post-closing that was a risk that the buyer took. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you handle regulatory and permitting issues in addition to just a business law practice for out-of-home companies. What are some regulatory and permitting trends that you're seeing? Well, I tell you, I can't wait for the day when I can answer that question with something like, oh, it's great. The (laughs) governments are backing off and more and more locations are opening up. (laughs) But unfortunately, that's not the case today. I would have to say that the regulatory and permitting trends that I see have actually remained quite stagnant for some time. Hmm. You know, most local governments allow billboards in the standard commercially zoned properties and due to spacing spacing restrictions or other elements in their code, the cities know that there's very few places left for new sites to be developed. So, you know, just kind of very stagnant. I definitely see a trend in towns adopting trade-in regulations that call for turning in permits of non-conforming signs in order to get digital faces. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I actually think it's very creative on the part of the government. You know, there's no legal argument that a local government can be forced to allow an operator to convert a digital sign, especially a non-conforming sign that generally can't be altered at all. Mm-hmm. So for a government to say, we'll let you convert that non-conforming sign to digital if you turn in three permits and remove you know, three non-conforming boards. I think that was a very creative move on their part to reduce the amount of non-conforming boards in this town. I also think that we're about to probably see another wave of litigation against local governments based Hmm. on sign code challenges. You know, operators, they have to get very creative to earn their rights to put up a sign. And as most of you know, you know, 13 years, 15 years ago, there was a big push to file legal challenges against local governments based on the unconstitutionality of their sign ordinances on the whole commercial versus non-commercial speech argument. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after about 10 years of that litigation, the courts kind of came out of it saying, hey, you know, we've seen this before. We know what you're up to. And the argument started to kind of die down. But, you know, I foresee that there's going to be a wave of different legal challenges on the horizon. And, you know, just like before, Once one operator is successful on one of these arguments, a lot of other operators will follow suit in their own towns. What sort of facts make it more likely that an out-of-home company will prevail when it challenges a a regulator? Well, you know, when a legal challenge is filed, I would say that the biggest factor in an operator's favor is their vested rights. You know, someone can have the perfect legal argument as to, you know, say the unconstitutionality of an ordinance. But if the rights hmm. to a permit have not vested, hmm. then the operator is going to lose the war. 
You know, vested rights is a matter of state law, and therefore it can vary state by state. But I know Florida, they seem to follow kind of what the majority of states do. So in Florida, a right to a permit can vest in one of two ways. It can vest when a party has reasonably and detrimentally relied upon existing law, creating equitable estoppel, or Number two, which is kind of less common that you see, which is when the government entity has acted in bad faith. So let's talk about those really quick. So Mm -hmm. equitable estoppel, you know, a lot of people refer to equitable estoppel as the substantial reliance test. You know, it's whether an operator incurred substantial investment of time and money in reasonable reliance on existing laws with no reason to believe that that law was going to ever change. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a lot of words to say, basically, everyone needs to play fair. If the mm-hmm. law is what it says it is, and you rely on it, you should be entitled to it. There is no bright line test. There's no specific amount of money that you have to spend in order to meet substantial reliance criteria. It's looked at on a case-by-case basis. So if you cannot create a vested right because of your equitable estoppel, the only other way you get that vested right is if the government acts in bad faith. You know, this is going to be the situation where you drop a permit application at the desk, the ordinance says you're entitled to this permit, the ordinance says the local government gives a response to a permit in, say, 15 days, and then they hold that permit application past the 15-day period while they work on getting a moratorium in place on the issuance of any sign permit. Something like that is going to be seen by the courts as the government acting in bad faith, and that can also get you your vested rights. But it's not, again, it's just not as common as more the substantial reliance. So I would say that if you're going to go do a legal challenge, you have to make sure that you have these vested rights. Otherwise, you're going to file your lawsuit. The local government's going to say, oh, that's unconstitutional. Fine, I'll change it. Hmm. And they'll change it. And then they'll file a motion with the court and say, court, the issue's moot. I've changed my ordinance. I've made it legal now. And the court will say, you're right. So you have to have those rights vested in the original law to be able to get your permits kicked out of it. Jennifer, could you talk a little about Reed versus Gilbert? I'm stunned still how many small towns have sign codes with 18 different sign categories where you have to read the billboard to decide what sort of regulations might apply, which seems to me to be asking for a Reed versus Gilbert lawsuit. What what have you been seeing down in the, in, in the South? Are, are towns updating their codes so as to become Reed versus Gilbert compliant? I would say definitely, yeah. Hmm. I see definite trend of the local governments working with each other. You know, they will take and steal the sign codes from those who have just survived that type of legal challenge. And when they come out the end fixing their code, other cities are just taking that and adopting it. I mean, I've seen codes in the South down here in Florida that are verbatim, county to county, you know, city to city. So they are definitely working with each other. I think that it's a lot harder for an operator to find these cities that have these challenges. 
it's more, you're going to find it more in the little tiny town that hasn't yet been developed, but development's moving in that direction. So obviously the industry is more interested in putting signs in that, in that market, but any well-established city or county, they are perfected Mm -hmm. at this point. At least that's how it is in Florida. Yep. Jennifer, any other words for our listeners? I would just say in closing, despite what's happening in our economy right now, I am an advocate. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a firm believer in our industry. I believe that our industry will be just fine once the economy reopens. You know, over the years doing this, I have seen highs and lows in our industry, but The key point is that the high moments keep coming and the high moments keep coming because we are an effective platform for an advertiser's message to a large percentage of the population in this digital era where consumers can just click past all the online advertisements. So we will survive this pandemic, not because we're being innovative and creative, but because we're a staple, we're a known entity, we are a workhorse that has successfully helped advertisers for decades and that will continue to be there providing an effective service for all of those businesses that are going to be emerging from the dust of this pandemic who will need to tell people that they're still in business. You know, I love the perspective there as someone who is lent money and invested in the industry through 9-11, lent money and invested in the industry through the Great Recession. It's a resilient business, and it will be back. And that's something that that particularly younger people in the industry, who all they've known is up and to the right, they need to hear that. Those are great words for our listeners. Yeah, I believe in the industry. That's all for this week. Thanks for appearing on the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast was edited by Lucas Jones and sponsored by Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is billboardinsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks.